When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. and we're continuing the Power Pop series. We're going to hear from three different guys today from three different bands. Beginning with Scott Kruger, who was in a band from Milwaukee called The Shivers, with two Vs, most famous for their single Teen Line. Then we're going to hear from John McMullen, who was in a band out of Missouri called The Trend, who released a single and an LP, both of which are very rare. And finally, we're going to hear from Vance Brescia, who was in the band The Mosquitoes from New York most famous for their song, That Was Then, This Is Now, that was covered by the Monkees. Thank you. 
for my podcast, I'm trying to I'm putting together kind of a series of episodes about power pop, and okay, it's and so it seems like you kind of I, I wonder where punk fits in, like the orbits the the, the orbits. I love that song, Make the Rules. That's and I I think of that as well, a power pop song. you guys did you think of yourselves as a punk band or yeah that's a good question i never i know we never i always talked to jill about that too we never considered ourselves power pop mm-hmm. or punk i mean i was just a big i was a big who fan yeah you know and and just like powerful music with with melody i mean that's you know that's why i looked at it but you know i mean the bands we listened to back then i guess were the who bad finger as far as inspiration, and, you know, I listened to the Stones a lot. They were a big. The Stooges were a big inspiration. Flaming Groovies were a big inspiration. Mata Hoople, I mean, things like that. But as far as like, think I don't think we ever like in the Shivers and the Power Pop ever came up. I never we, we never thought of ourselves as a punk band or power pop band. We just wanted to write our own powerful melodic music. I mean, that was basically it. And as far as far as like. Putting it, I think power pop is very limiting, a very limiting term. I mean, I, I, I never thought of it, but now I can see it now. But back then, no. As far as like the difference between punk and power pop, I think punk was just kind of an attitude, and you could even have that attitude in the Shivers. I always thought it was a punk attitude, but it was it was just melodic music and things like you know and like that. But as far as like pegging it ourselves, I, we know we never, I never, we never did that. No, mm-hmm. right. Well, it's interesting. Like you said, Badfinger. It seems like Badfinger. I love Badfinger. They're so great, but you know, they never really. It seems like they were. They're one of those groups that were a band's band. Like everybody else who was in bands loved Badfinger, and they were, you know, a or, huge. Influence. Yeah, you could say the same thing. And maybe say this. Yeah, same. You could say the same thing about Big Star. Yeah. I yeah. guess because we love Big Star too. I mean, I wore those albums. I wore those albums out listening to Big Star and. um and, and Badfinger, and they did. They they did influence. I'm sure they influenced a lot of people to be in bands. So you had and, Big uh, Star, because that's another thing I've been trying to figure out is when people started discovering Big Star. 
Um, I'd have to say, with my case, Howie probably turned me on the big star, or and Jerry Bruce turned me on the big star, and that would have been about seventy four, seventy five. Really? Wow. We used to get. Yeah, because we got th- those elements were cut out back then. You could find them in the cutout bins. Yeah, and I remember being with there was a a record store here called Dirty Jacks, and I can remember me and Jerry. And I'm talking about Presley Haskell, but he's Jerry to me, and Rick Nielsen. And I remember Rick Nielsen in the cutout bin picking up that first Big Star album, and then asking us, oh, "Is this any good?" And we say, "Yeah, yeah, you got to buy it. It's fantastic." Really. But, um, where was that? Yeah. And where or when? Both, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. That would have been a place called Dirty Jack's Record Rack okay. in Milwaukee. That would have been around, oh, God. I don't know, 75 maybe? That's great. So you you specifically remember that? Rick pulling that record out and saying, is this any yeah, good? Yeah, and asking Jerry, not me. He asked yeah. Jerry, goes, well, yeah. is, this, is this any good? And then Jerry said, this, you know, it's fantastic. And then they ended up covering a song on there in the street, I think. Yeah, they did that for that that '70s show. Yeah, I've heard that before right. that the the cutout bins would be full of those big star records. Those are worth hundreds of dollars now, and it's funny. I've heard other of other people say that you would go to the record store and they'd have a whole bunch of those big star records in the cutout bin. That's oh, crazy. Yeah. I still have mine. Yeah, <laughs> I still have my my uh, Radio City, which I had Alex Chilton sign for me. Wow, and then. Um, and then, and then the, the first record, because he used to he used to see Alex Schulten a lot. I mean, you know, back in the nineties and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, he I don't he had a it was like before they had the Big Star reunion, but I remember seeing him at it was was it Shank Hall then I think it was Shank Hall, and he did uh, he was doing September Girls. And then he broke a string, and then he's the intro September Girls. He broke a string, and he said, "That's enough of that." And then he didn't even play the song anymore. <laughs> he, you know, went on to the next thing. And then I remember playing. Jill, Jill, and I went. We were in the Shivers, and this was must have been like eighty one, eighty two. We were playing in Chicago, and we got we were finished. And I don't know where it was, but Alex Schill was playing like across the street somewhere. So, oh, let's go see Alex Schill. That'd be fantastic. So we went up there. There was nobody up there. He had a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand, and he was like holding the microphone and just like kind of like just swaying around. And he was really drunk, and he was very disappointed. We were very sad, and we left because it was just too sad to see him like that. But I think he got better a little bit later when he put the you know he had the big star thing. But those albums, those two albums are like the greatest, in my opinion, those are the greatest albums ever, those those, those big stuff. I mean, I still listen to them. I mean, they're just fantastic.
as the shivers goes, we were stuck in the wrong place, and you know we should have got out of here because there was a time when um, you know we were just kind of you're kind of like um, just treading water. I mean, basically, I mean, you know, there's only so much you can do here, and you know you can play the clubs and you can do that again. And Adam and he didn't seem to think that we were ready to do anything yet, and. Jill and I thought we were, and then some guys in the band, they wanted them, they did actually, Jimmy and Mike, they moved to Boston. And to me and Jill was like, what's the point of moving to Boston? Because we had Greg Shaw express interest in us mm-hmm. and putting us on bomb. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's just go to California. We should go to California. But by that time, it was too late and the band kind of disintegrated. So we just ended up not doing anything. But I always thought, I mean, I always thought that we were told, you know, we didn't. We don't have the songs. I'm going. What do you mean we don't have the songs? I said we have great songs, but it was just a matter of you know of the time and you know you need one person really to go to bat for you and that you know that person never came along for us. But if I in hindsight, you know, if it was if I was up to me, we would have moved out to California. I think something would have happened to us then. You know, we just forgot about the songs and then we forgot about you know whatever. And then I remember, I don't know where I saw it or where I heard it. But I saw something on maybe it was on the internet about a band called The Shivers, a great band. And I remember telling Jill, I go, "There's another band called The Shivers, and they're getting all this attention." But it was us. <laughs> this guy, um, <laughs> this guy in in Massachusetts, like put out our stuff. And I go, "Oh, oh that's." And he, then he eventually told us, he goes, "Why well, bootlegged you guys and stuff?" And that's he kind of started the whole thing rolling. But anyway, he, you know, and then all of a sudden, and then we started getting all this attention and stuff. And then it was, it's great. It's great. Yeah, you guys would have been a great fit with Bomb, for sure. Oh, exactly. And, you know, if we could have went, and, the, and the Greg Shaw said, you know, I'm interested in working with you guys. And that might have even been before I was in the band. They made, because they put out Teen Line before I was in the band. But I don't know why they never advised. Well, it's really, it's a hard it's a hard thing to do, to drop everything and just to move somewhere, I guess. But, you know, that would have been our best opportunity to achieve more uh, than we did, I guess, you know. But... I'm happy that people recognize us now and, you know, like the stuff now. And I always told Jill, well, hey, if we didn't have the songs, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's not true because that's what now, I mean, that's what, you know, people, we do have, we did have the songs and stuff. And Sing Sing reissued our stuff and then um, a Rerun reissued our stuff. And Jill and I were able to um, take the master tapes that we did have for that, some of the stuff, some of that stuff, the other album, or the CD, or the record. Uh, yeah, I have a the CD. Shipper. Yeah, yeah, and um, but we were able to remix a lot of that stuff, and then some of the stuff we had to take off cassette, and you know. But um, there's a guy named Justin Perkins that mastered that stuff. They did a great job with it. So, but you know, there are you know, there's always things you can think. Of, you know, moving out to Los Angeles is easier said than done. Now it's easier to say that, but who knows what would have happened if we if we did? But uh, that would have been the thing to do.
didn't I read that you almost had a record deal with Arista or something like that? We sent our stuff to Arista, but they just said they weren't interested. Oh. <laughs> and then Eric Carver did tell Jill, he said, you know, he goes, I'm not going to help you guys get a deal, but if you guys get a record deal, I'll produce, I'll produce your record. But we only sent our stuff out to maybe one or two labels, Arista being one. And, you know, we didn't get much, we didn't get a very good, but you know, you got to send it out all, you got to do a lot of work to do that stuff. You can't send it out to two labels and expect something to happen. So, um, but we really didn't have people. I mean, back then, you know, if you were in a band, you didn't, you have people, I know I can't explain it, but you didn't do the legwork yourself. I guess we didn't think we could or something. So you, you know, you'd put that into someone, someone else would do that, but it, it just seemed like people weren't really willing to work for us that hard. But it, you know, I wish they, it would have been great. It would have been great to have Eric Carmen produce it. Oh, yeah. I don't know. You know, you know. I can't think of anything. he Did he, did he ever even get into production? Yeah, know. he'd produce some girl. He After the band broke up, he wanted to do this stuff with Jill, but Jill, she wasn't interested in it. He wanted to have someone do, like, a, a female do raspberry songs and stuff. And, and he had the band, but the Peterson was going to be, Tom Peterson was going to play bass. And I don't know, I don't know what else, but Jill, you know, she didn't want to do it, but that was after the shivers and stuff. So he did produce somebody and I, she knows, I don't know who, I don't know who this person is, but I don't think it really went anywhere. Mm-hmm. She might've done a cover of go all the way or something. This woman or girl, I don't know who it was. She would know, but I, it didn't obviously it didn't go anywhere. How did Eric Carmen know about you? Did you open for him or something? There was a thing in Los in California. There was a a Raspberries Eric Carmen fanzine called the Carmen Connection, and there was a woman there that in that in, interview us interviewed us back then. I think she got word to Eric Carmen about us, and then he eventually called us or called Jill. I actually think it was more interested in Jill as far as like a solo thing than anything mm-hmm. else. And um, offered to produce us if we if we if we had a label, but that's how he hooked up with us. It's for this uh, place in Los Angeles, some fanzine called the Karma Connection. Well, so I, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's the, there's kind of a power pop cult, and I I've been into it since the '90s, you know, and uh, oh yeah, and you know, I have like a 10 volume series of CDs that are called teen line. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen those, but they're just compilations. That's the guy in Boston. Yeah. That's the guy in Boston. Yeah. And they're just yeah, compilations of like random weird songs from singles right. and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Right. Wait, what's that guy's name? Damn it. I got, I got me. Uh, I haven't talked to him in a while, but yeah, that's who put it out is the guy in Boston that put out the shiver stuff too. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that song so, is just, at this point, you know, it's to a it's it's a niche a niche audience or whatever, but it's like a legendary <laughs> song, you know what I mean? I mean But Teen Line is a legendary I mean, song? Yeah, yeah, in terms of like the niche the niche power pop community or whatever, <laughs> the people that are are into into that oh, stuff. Oh, that's great. Um That's great. Yeah, it's definitely yeah, everybody I remember reading somewhere, it's Joel's song, it's not mine, so I'm not blowing my horn. I have nothing to do with it. I wasn't even, I didn't record it, but they called it one of the greatest independent power pop songs of all time. They call Teen Line. Right. 
because it wasn't we didn't have a label or anything. We just put it out. But it sounds great. I mean, I remember recording you know, the stuff later with 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 the Shivers, and you know, we went to good studios. We saved up our money, and we played out so much that we, I think we just did two or three takes of these songs, and probably no overdubs or not well, not many overdubs, and just uh, you know, put them out like that. But yeah, Teen Line, that's a you know, and I I see this. There's bands in Japan that did our song. There were two bands and or maybe more but that cover that song too so that's a i always told joe i mean that's a great compliment to your to you and your songwriting is that you know bands actually covered that song and stuff and so it's cool and there was a place in was it barcelona or madrid they had like a they think like they had like a shivers party there and stuff i'm going what but that's cool too so yeah it's just we got a lot of notoriety yeah, over the years, so that's great. I'm very pleased with that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a well. It's kind of like the story of Big Star, where you know they got rediscovered. People didn't really know about them at the in their time. Oh yeah, they got rediscovered later, and the Shivers is just kind of a smaller version of that. Where you know, right, right, right. Yeah, if we would have had a couple albums out, that would have made a little difference in the world. But you know, whatever. At least we got that one album out. So that, you know, it's it's very cool, and I mean, I, I, I mean, getting recognition is, is 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 an amazing thing that it would, you know, last this long. But you know, we're very grateful for it. Yeah. Well, God, the records are worth. The value of vinyl has skyrocketed in like the last five years. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's huge now. Yeah. Oh yeah, and we, I mean, she, we got Jill. I think. She got like three or four hundred dollars for those singles, a couple of them. Yeah, definitely worth a lot of money, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I have one, but I can't sell it, it's mine. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. I I wanna keep it, it's mine. You know, it means it means a lot to us, so then we can you know and um I remember when um Jill's mom passed away a few years ago and her dad passed away prior to that. But anyway, she was selling the house for her mom. We were cleaning it out. And we go in this little, like, well, what's this? It's like a little, not a closet, but a little something. I don't know why. I don't remember. I remember finding, like, four Shiver singles in there. I think her dad saved them. Oh, wow. I go, Joe, look, we got, we got four Shiver singles and stuff. So that yeah, was pretty cool. So he said, he said thanks to her dad. But that was kind of neat. Yeah. But, yeah, and the reissues are great. And it's great having the stuff. And it's great, you know, people still remember us. And But those were great. Those are good songs. I mean, we gave up. We didn't even think about it until there was kind of a resurgence and stuff, and it's it's fantastic. I'm glad people like it. I'm glad people listen to it, and uh, I think the songs on there speak for themselves. Yeah, definitely.
I would love to hear the story of the trend, like of of how the band formed, and you know, I, I've talked because it's it's interesting. I've talked to like I talked to Will Birch. He doesn't really like the term power pop, and I talked to other guys. It, but it seems like the trend we're like all in on power pop. That's the impression well, we were, I get. We were, we 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 absolutely were. Uh, what I don't like about the term power pop now is that there has been such a self-imposed exclusion. It's kind of become what the old album rockers predicted would happen. But it's it's done that because the people involved in it have done it to themselves, and I, I say that being someone who has absolutely been all in from the moment that it, it that I heard it, I went nuts over Power Pop. Literally, upon hearing, I mean, I, I was I was already loving bands like Sweet. I'd gone back, and this would have been about. The time Sweet came out with Love Is Like Oxygen, and I I bought the album Level Headed that had that on it, and I was like I I really like this rock that is catchy, and that's you know and I I loved Cherry Baby by the band Stars, and then one night I was uh, listening very late at night and heard uh, Listen to Her Heart by Tom Petty for the first time. And so these were all things that I heard before the Knack and before the Romantics and before 2020. You know, the onslaught was right after this. But, you know, when I heard Listen to Her Heart by Tom Petty, I thought it was a Birds reunion. I literally thought it was McGuinn, Clark, and Hillman because I'd read about McGuinn, Clark, and Hillman getting back together. And I had some old Birds records and I was a huge Monkees fan and a Beatles fan. So, I mean, I loved I loved all the original '60s bands, and then I heard "Listen to Her Heart," and I'm like, "Oh, the bird! It's got it. That's the birds." Because I didn't know who Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers happened to be at the time. Then I learned who Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were, based on Breakdown being on the FM soundtrack. So, I mean, I loved all the FM rock too. I mean, even though I'm a power popster and claim it and put my hand up and all that sort of stuff. When Power Pop first came out, I was I was still buying Boston Records and Foreigner and and all of that. And what I loved about Power Pop is how fresh it sounded, mixed right in with all that stuff. So I was starting to write some songs that were kind of simple, but my goal was I was I I had been taking classical piano since I was five years old from my mother who was in her younger days somewhat of a uh, concert pianist and a very very amazingly gifted sight reader and classical pianist and i took piano lessons from my mom had a very solid classical background i can score music uh you know i, I can staff it out i can uh, do all that and could do it at a relatively young age but when i heard the simplicity of like, you know, Listen to Her Heart by Tom Petty. And then right after that, I heard the Ramones. And, you know, and so, you know, punk to me was, the punk I liked was the pop punk, like the Ramones. I didn't like the, uh, I never got into the Clash the way I got into the Ramones, for example, just because, you know, the Ramones sounded like a 60s girl 
group with distorted guitars and a male vocalist. It was all structured the way that something on Redbird Records would have been. And uh, I loved it. And so when I first started writing songs, the idea was to find the catchiest thing with the simplest structure. And uh, I understood structure because of classical music. And so it, it became like a puzzle to try to put catchy choruses together. And so this would have been in about the early part of 1978 when I really started writing some things. And I would have been 14, getting ready to be 15 years old. The very first song that I ever wrote that, that anybody that we ever recorded was a song called I Need Another Fix, or just Another Fix is how I wrote it as Another Fix. And uh, uh, I wrote it to be faster than Buddy Holly, um, the same kind of chords as Buddy Holly. And at the same time, you know, I wanted it to be incredibly short, like the Ramones. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. um, it, if it's less than two minutes, then great. <laughs> you know, kind of one of those deals. And it turned out, it turned out to be an okay song. So this was all, you know, before I heard the knack and I'd been invited to play with a few different groups with a, a guy named uh, Dennis Fuller and his brother, Kevin, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I would have at that point been 13 going on 14. And, and then we, um, I guess we played Sweet Home Alabama and Try and Love Again by the Eagles in a talent show. But uh, Dennis and I got along real well. Uh, we were in the same grade, and he was a bass player. Then I went completely berserk. I'm going to skip ahead to, like, in the late spring of 79, I walked into a record store in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And I was it, – it took me uh, – it took me a long time to figure out – I went in the record store for the sole purpose – of finding the album You're Gonna Get It by Tom Petty because it had listened to her heart on it. And I'd been searching for it for quite a long time. And I finally figured out who it was. I finally realized it wasn't the Birds or Gwen Clark and Hillman. I went in to get that album and a brand new, um, and it must have been June of 79 probably. It seemed like it was spring, but it probably was about June of 79. I walk into this record store and the moment I walk in, somebody that's behind the counter has the demonstration record going, and I hear Let Me Out by the Knack. And it blew me away. It absolutely, um, I heard that, and I'm like, oh my God, This whoever is doing this is doing exactly what I want to do, and they've beat me to it. And so I'm a little bit ticked off, but I'm enthralled by it. And I stood there, I went into a record store to get a song that I thought I loved more than anything else in the world. And then the moment I walked in, I stood there and listened to all of side one of get the knack. And I was like, I got to have that no matter what it is. 
And uh, I didn't have enough money to buy two things. So instead of buying Petty that day, I got, and all they had was a cassette. They, you know, they didn't even have uh, vinyl available. Uh, they sent that out and sold it out. Uh, I didn't know. I was like, I don't know anything about these guys. And they were like, man, they're hot. They're, they're going to be, you know, bigger than the Beatles or as big as the Beatles. Or the, what the people said. And I'm like, well, they sound kind of like them. And they also sound a little bit like the monkeys and a little bit like sweet. And there's everything that is mixed together like that. I love it. And so I, I bought that um, the first day that it was available, at least in Jonesboro, Arkansas. I'm from Kennett, Missouri, by the way. And uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas is about an hour away from, from Kennett. And it's where my grandparents lived. And so I went there all the time. And my main record stores in high school were, were there. And I went nuts when I heard Get the Knack. Just went berserk. Right. And loved it. I still think it's um, in terms of my... I mean, later I heard the first 2020 album and kind of liked it ahead of Get the Knack. And when I heard the first uh, Beat album, just the Beat, yeah. uh, I put it ahead of Get the Knack. But for the time... To be a band, I mean, that made me want to be, a, you know, that made me want to be, get serious about forming a band that I wasn't just, you know, playing pickup because somebody asked me to. I was like, I want to, I want to form the band. I want to use the songs I'm working on, and then uh, the the guys that were interested in that band with me were the guys that formed the trend. I mean, Dennis Fuller, who I played in uh, uh, kind of a pickup band with uh, played bass and then my really good friends Brian Mitchell who was a drummer and who also loved the Knack and then on lead vocals uh, was Matt Collier who could scream all night and never lose his voice and uh, when Matt and I sang together we could sing in really good harmony so I mean it was just a natural we were the guys that liked the Mac. We performed in a in a talent the same talent show called the Mod Assembly. We performed My Sharona, which by the, I'll just tell you, I thought My Sharona was about next to the last as far as best songs on that album. It happened to be the one that caught on with you know top forty radio, but you know every song on side one uh, to me is better than My Sharona. But My Sharona. Uh, was also good. Well, I, I do like the song. I, I completely it. agree. I, I agree completely. It doesn't um, even sound like the rest of the album. And uh, yeah, it, I would make it, it probably like the worst. Sweet. Yeah. I I thought uh, I thought uh, Siamese Twins was was uh, was worse, uh, simply based on what everything else was was providing. But still, I love Siamese Twins. You know, it's a it's a it's a song that doesn't hang with the rest of the album, in my opinion, either. But I still kind of thought Sharona was was better than than it. Uh, but we played that song in a in a talent show called the Mod Assembly, and people uh, gave us a great response. We played Good Girls Don't as an encore, uh, and we only practiced that one I think like twice. But it it came off, and we had a we had a pretty good feel. But we were definitely more garage than slick power pop at that at that moment. We were definitely, um, and we definitely were not anything close to, you know, what I had generally been performing 
since a young age, and we were anything but classical at that moment. I mean, you know, since then I've tried to integrate some things, uh, but that's that's been long after the band was was not a thing. But I loved every second of playing with the high school version of the trend. Um, we were four guys that just loved the knack, and then. It was like a new discovery every every couple of weeks uh, for the fall of 79 through all of 80. And then even even at the very early part of, of 81, I mean, we were di- we were discovering it all together. I mean, the first 2020 album, the Plimsolls, uh, first album on Planet, Phil Seymour, um, yeah. you know, I mean, the records. You know, we were trading albums back and forth. Listen to this. What do you think about that? You know, and uh, so I mean, it, and it was uh, uh, it was the four of us. You know, um, and then and there were other. We had other friends who would talk to us about it some, but they they also were they didn't get into that. At that point, it, it was kind of new wave too. You know, because mm. you know, new wave got lumped into everything, but there was definitely the power pop arm of of new wave and at that moment there could not have been anybody more all in than than me as a as the guy who was trying to write the songs and you know uh wanting to perform originals that were as catchy as the others and then at the same time the the guys who were so willing to you know say yeah let's let's work on an original song uh, yeah, this does sound a little bit like the Plimsolls. Or yes, this one sounds like the Ramones. Or this one, you know, they, they were. I mean, I couldn't have done it by myself. And the other guys were so amazingly all in on 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 the direction that that was cool. That uh, that's how we got together. It was we were the fans of the knack at our school. Right. Uh, the, the, the big fans of the night. We were the ones who went to see them live. Uh, I ran away from home to go see the night. I got in so much trouble. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have permission to see them in Memphis on a school night. And I went anyway. And I paid the price. I got all my musical equipment taken away from me for, you know, kind of, you know, being a bad boy. And I, I was. I deserved it. But I had to see them. I had to see what they did on stage. And it was like education to me. And it, you know, it, it didn't match, you know, where, you know, we were, we were all pretty good guys at, at school. We all, you know, we all made really good grades. We were, you know, it, 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 it didn't necessarily fit. Uh, but at the same time, it was, that bug hit us all hard. It hit me the hardest. Yeah, I, I could, that was kind of my guess because of, that you came, you your stuff came out in '81, and the uh, the look of the band, the sound of the band, it seemed like you guys were fans of power pop who wanted to do it too. You know, that was kind of my guess. Yeah, we were. Now, I also felt a little bit slighted on it because I really, I really was already doing it before I heard the knack. I just. I was so young, I didn't have a vehicle for it. And uh, so, unfortunately, there's there's nothing tangible, you know, other than a few photographs from before our single. But there was definitely a fanhood 
that went with us. And we were, you know, there, there wasn't a, a, an easy way for people in Kennett, Missouri to track down information on, I mean, on, on some of these other, other bands. I mean, we had some decent radio. We had a station that was the album rock station out of Memphis, Rock 103, who had some DJs who were very sympathetic to uh, New Wave and some power pop. I mean, they they played Bram Tchaikovsky's Girl of, Girl of My Dreams on the same channel that you were going to hear, you know, all the Led Zeppelin album tracks. That's where I heard it for the first time. You know, in terms of Joe Jackson, they would they played the, uh, you know, is she really going out with him? Uh, which after it actually caught on, it was in the top forty. Then even a couple of AM stations around here, you know, played it once it was once it actually charted. But I mean, in terms of trying to keep up with it as it was going on, it was it was difficult. And you, I mean, we were we were buying magazines, and when one of us went someplace, we always hit a record shop trying to find the most interesting underground looking record we could find, and then we, you know, everybody passed it around. And um, that's how I heard of the band The Colors. They were playing in New York. I, I, my family took a trip. I picked up this, you know, uh, five track EP, and I'm like, "Gosh, this band is really, really cool." <laughs> and then, you know, many years later, we're on the same compilation as as the Colors. Um, and I remember, I remember even looking at the way people looked in advertisements in billboard or record world and just guessing that they're going to have that kind of sound and um, there was a record store in memphis called poplar tunes that had every every record that was put out was a demonstration record and then you could go and literally uh, have a little booth where you could play the record and that's that's where i heard shoes for the first time was in one of those little demonstration uh, booths at Poplar Tunes in Memphis, just because of the way the advertising looked, it may and their name, it made me think they're going to have the sound I want to hear, and they did. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was amazing how how things were back then, the way it was discovered. Now you you don't have to do that. You don't have to put in the effort. There's you know there's instantaneous you know clicking back and forth and YouTube or whatever, and you can you can go down whatever hole you want to go down very quickly. But then, man, it took a lot of effort and, and we loved the chase. And, and when, you know, when you had a, when you had a discovery that was worth passing along to your friends, that was an, an amazing thing. Right. Yeah. I can still remember that to a certain extent, you know, right before the, I started collecting records, probably. Well, I mean, I've, I was collecting music since I was a kid, but, yeah, in the when I really started collecting records in the early mid '90s, you know that was still before the internet. So I did a lot of buying records just because of what it looked like to see what it was going to sound like, you know. So I know exactly anything that happened, you know, right before um, everything became instantaneously available. You know, the effort meant that, that dictated a great deal. Uh, I mean, if you put the effort in, then you were going to ultimately find what you were looking for. But you had some guesses and you had some, you had some incorrect guesses, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I remember, I remember some bands that I was, you know, disappointed in. Uh, we had other friends that were friends of our band that weren't as involved with us musically, but they, they did know music. They knew what they liked and they would tip us off as well. Um, you know, if they, if they came across something and, uh, a fellow that was a year older than I am, who I was on the same swim team with and, and all of that, um, he was, he was a year older and he went to uh, Mizzou uh, before I did by a year. And he's the one that heard the first fool's face album. And so, uh, he, he literally, uh, made me a tape and sent it to me and said, you have to listen to this song right now, drop what you're doing. And, uh, the song was, I don't want to hear it, uh, by fool's face, which I just love. I love that song. It's always been, you know, one of my favorites. And he made me, a, he, he, he uh, described the band, told me it was a five man band. Uh, it was one of those bands that did have a keyboard player. He, he said, uh, he told me all about them. I, I heard the song, I don't want to hear it. And I just went nuts. I was like, this is fantastic. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I was a fan of Fool's Face long before we played with him. Not not that long, but I mean, it 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 definitely. I was familiar with their material because we had been tipped off, and uh, we Kenneth's. You know, the, the town I'm from is a a pretty musical town, and uh, you know the guy that tipped me off. He was in the uh, class ahead of me at, at school in high school, and uh, he took piano lessons from my mom as well. And uh, Cheryl took piano lessons from my mother as well. And Cheryl was, uh, you know, always into music, uh, but she wasn't really into the new wave stuff. I mean, she loved the Eagles and she loved Fleetwood Mac and and ultimately, you know, (laughs) literally uh, played with them or some of them. And, you know, and uh, but she always was incredibly supportive of us. I mean, she thought what we were doing was was kind of odd and, and cute, but, uh, I remember, uh, you know, she would, uh, she, she would periodically try to, uh, give us advice like, well, you know, um, you, you might, you might want to go a little bit, you know, spread out a little bit more than, than just new wave and just power pop, you know, it, it would, it would probably help you, you know, if you, you were a little more broad-minded and, and, uh, and, and she was ultimately right about that. But at the same time, we loved what we're, I know I did. I loved what I loved at the time. And, uh, there, there wasn't any way that we were going to, uh, kind of get too far away from something that was, you know, melodic and had, had that indie spirit thing. Uh, before that was before they even used the word indie Uh, but that's it was an it was an indie spirit uh, that was kind of down underneath all of that with um, with a lot of these bands and some of them lost it when they uh, when when they got signed to major labels some of them miraculously uh, like you know uh, 2020 sounded one way and uh, when they were I guess recording with Bob which was great. And then when they got signed to a major portrait distributed by CBS, they even sounded better. And, uh, I, and then some, it, it didn't quite work that way, or I, did, I didn't think it worked that way. Uh, but, uh, man, I, I think back of that time on all that time. And it's just, I, I, I it's my favorite period of music, obviously. And, uh, and I love it and I miss it. And, uh, we we sure worked really hard. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned uh, indie rock because that's what Lucky Day really sounds like. Like Lucky Day could have come out in the '90s on an indie rock label. And... I I hear that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear that. Um, and Lucky Day had a certain it had a certain uh, feel to it. We had a three hour session. I mean we. We pulled our money, and all we could afford 
was three hours at uh, Kennett Sound Studio, a, a local uh, recording studio that had an eight panel reel to reel multi track recorder in it. And um, so we, we, we recorded it in the summer of 1981. And we, of, of our allotted three hours, we spent almost all of our time on Lucky Day. And uh, we had rehearsed it before going in. And uh, uh, both uh, Matt Collier and I had kind of gotten our voices rough accidentally through our rehearsal <laughs> from, from going in. And so we kept having to... Um, so we we did the instrumental track relatively quickly, and then we hand clapped over the top of it, and then we we worked on the, the vocals a little while, which ultimately sound very very rough, uh, but kind of cool in an indie way, you know, much much later as it would have sounded, and then we had very little time left for the flip side, and uh, so we just kind of. Um, we we did she's hi fi, the 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 main track, and we did it in one take. We did and and I did, uh, an an overdub of the rhythm guitar part, um, because I wanted it to sound a little bit like the B fifty twos, and I had noticed that uh, on some of their stuff the rhythm guitar sounded like it was doubled, so I I I definitely wanted to double the. Um, rhythm guitar part on She's High Five, but we spent, I mean, practically no time on that song. The odd thing about it was, um, by the time the record was pressed, and then we, three of the four of us went to school at Mizzou, Dennis Fuller, the bass player, he went to Murray State, and uh, he was like, man, I don't, I don't think I can, you know, be in the band anymore, but when, um, you know, we didn't really play my first semester of my freshman year there, but uh, as after the record came out, um, the radio station KCLU turned the record. And they, I don't, I one one station did play Lucky Day once, uh, but KCLU, which is a very respected underground station and was respected then and got even more respected through their um, when they helped reunite Big Star later. 
uh, they flipped the record over and they played She's Hi-Fi and they played it more than they should have probably. Uh, but it benefited us so much so that by the, by the spring of my freshman year, late winter, early spring of my freshman year, the song, we, we sold a bunch of copies of it and um, the song got on the party tapes and then we, we were in a position to play live um, by the spring of uh, 82 and Dennis, uh, you know, I called him up and said, Hey man, are, are you able to do it? Or, you know, he's like, man, I can't, I just, I just really need to not be in the band and sorry. And you know, there was never any hard feelings or anything, but we kind of thought, well, we, we kind of need to play. So I'd met a guy named Bill Goslin who um, um, could play guitar, but really wasn't uh, familiar with, with bass very well. So Bill and I kind of woodshedded uh, to get him up to speed on, on bass. And then um, uh, because I could already see that there were going to be some of the new songs I was working on were going to use uh, keyboards too, I felt like we needed to get an, another uh, another guitar in the band that could kind of do lead guitar. And we got Mike Astrakhan, who was a very good friend of ours, a little bit younger. He was still in high school at the time. And so when he could, we would play as a five-piece. When he couldn't, uh, we played as a four-piece, and we just left you know, certain songs out or did different arrangements of them. Um, but that's that's how we did it, and it was um, our our existence in college was because some uh, some airplay that happened on the flip side of the single. Um, She's high five got played. I, I, I don't know how many times, but it it got played enough to to make people treat us nice. Um, <laughs> lucky day, as far as I know, got exactly one spin in Columbia, Missouri, <laughs> <laughs> which I always thought lucky day was by far the better song. Yeah. But, um, you know, at the, um, but anyway, um, that's not how it happened. And, uh, so we, we got, uh, we, we got, uh, right off the bat and it was, it was nice. And it allowed us to play it got our name out there the, the record was uh, i guess gave us enough credibility to be an opening act for fool's face and the eldest brothers and um, things like that happened because kcou played us if they hadn't played the record I, I don't know that anything would have happened and if they hadn't played the record we never would have made the album um, I still would have been writing those songs, but that album wouldn't have been made that way at that moment. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of how I look at it. Um, and I, I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to see, uh, think, you know, you did this jockeys forever for being nice to us because they certainly didn't have to, but they did. And, uh, when you made the record, did you have to put it out yourselves? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, we, um, we, we did it in a slightly different arrangement than the single, but it was, we did it at the same studio. And, uh, another friend of mine had kind of said, man, you need to talk to my older brother. And he was, he was, uh, he was in a garage band and he, you know, made some recordings back in the late sixties. And he says, 
that you guys could do this kind of slightly different way and see what you think. And that guy's name was Gary Wilcoxon. And Gary, uh, while I was the one who noticed things like a, a doubled rhythm guitar through thing through like the first B-52s album, uh, Gary wanted to experiment on either me singing double or uh, Collier doubling his voice. And when Collier doubled his voice at, you know, at Gary's direction, he sounded very much like Peter Noon. It, it was really cool. The effect of, of doubling Matt's voice in the studio had, he was like, man, you guys, uh, if, if you do this, you can, you can really, you can sound like Herman's Hermits. You can do, you know, it, and he was very uh, instrumental in getting that, a, a, a much better vocal sound on the album than the vocals were on the single. And then we tried doubling my voice and uh, he was like, man, you sound just like the Alan Parsons project. And so I'd already had a slow song that I'd been working on uh, just with the piano riff. And then I finished it off. And so right there in the middle of all those power pop and half punk songs, we had a slower song called two plus two, which I was very conscious of trying to have my voice sound like Eric Wilson from the Alec Parsons Project. Oddly enough, that song got played on a different radio station down in this area in southeastern Missouri, uh, which was odd because no other song of ours sounded like that. But mm -hmm. they they played it, and uh, we actually had an air truck of it being played, <laughs> and it was kind of kind of weird. But uh, we we definitely took the approach that we want to come across with a lot of different kinds of power pop examples or you know one song we want it to have a punk feel one song we want to have we want it to sound like it's you know derived straight from the monkeys another song we want it to sound like fool's face another song you know and whether we were able to translate that 
it was still going to us, you know, first. The song Mama Thought You Were a Nice Girl, I wrote that to sound like the cars, but it ultimately didn't because instead of the riff being played on the keyboard like I originally wrote it, Mike uh, did it with a fuzzed up guitar and it had this really rough indie sound and we um, uh, we did not, I mean, the keyboard was still used in the solo and some of the other, it, it was there, but I changed the keyboard sound to be more subdued rather than way out front like it would have been had we not tried that or had we still been a four piece it probably i would have probably played both the guitar part and the and the and the keyboard part but when mike played it and put his you know crunch on it uh, we were like man that sounds great and we wanted to uh, i mean it totally completely changed the direction of the song and i think it would have been our slickest song but when he crunched it up man that i thought wow this this I want to leave it like it is because this, he really, he brought a different sound to it. And I liked, uh, we all loved it. can tell this it is a wonderful all of it is the the greatest memories of my life really so uh, from those old days i love it and well it's so it, but it was it's great to get a perspective from somebody from one of these bands who was actually a big fan of power pop and went into it from that point of view i haven't really talked to anybody everybody else like I talked to Van Duren and these different guys, and they're all like, "Yeah, I don't really, I don't, I do a lot more than power pop." Nobody's really into the being pigeonholed like Van, that. But Van told me himself to be careful. Yeah, I mean, Van Van has sung background on some of my solo stuff, and um, and my solo producer was his producer when he was in Good Question and produced right. Jane and all that, but. 
uh, I could tell you all that, but Van told me the same exact thing. You know, don't get pigeonholed. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. uh, release something that's different just to throw them off because once you're pigeonholed, you can't get out. did the mosquitoes form 19 late 1981 i would say 82 somewhere around there and what do you think inspired the kind of music that the mosquitoes made well uh, i i know what inspired me to do it it was the, the the name everything was you know my idea i had a band before that called quist named after the cereal you remember the cereal quist right with a little martian on it it was only three guys Two of the guys who actually became mosquitoes again, uh, after, but they sort of left. The, the drummer was a filmmaker, and he wanted to get more into that. And I, Tony just sort of said he was done with music for a while. So I found these other two, uh, this other guy that I knew, and and the drummer came back, <laughs> and we started the mosquitoes, and then we added the guy Tony back into the group later on. But um, what inspired the mosquitoes? Everything from, you know, comic books, cartoons, TV shows, which is where I got the name for the mosquitoes from Gilligan's Island.
right. And heavy British invasion groups like the Mersey Beats and, you know, the Hermits, of course, the Beatles, Dave Clark Five, Dave Berry and the Cruisers, you know, lesser known ones, too. Uh, but then again, there was Tom Jones, the Partridge family, Alice Cooper. There's a little bit of all of it in there. I never had any shame of, of, uh, of liking stuff that didn't fit that, you know, the cool category. Were you guys, you guys were in, were you based in New York? Yes, Long yeah. Island. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, how did things progress? Did you, did you uh, try hard to get a record deal and stuff like that? Yeah, we did. We did. We, um, it was very grassroots the way we did it. We just really, uh, we, we kept getting back then to get a good gig was really hard. So I went into the city and got us this gig at this place called RT Fireflies. And that was considered a big gig and it sort of was a big moment for us. And, then we got into a place called the Ritz and the Peppermint Lounge, and and so those those were the it spots to play if you were in that under, underground garage thing. Also, this place called the Dive, which was uh, I'm sure if you interviewed the other bands that were around when the Mosquitoes were there, they would all tell you the Dive was one of the key launch pads for uh, all that '80s garage pop music that started. Mm-hmm. I have I have two CDs that somebody sent me, it must be twenty years ago, that are all just a lot of live recordings and demos that you did. Like I remember, I love the song "Hang." You don't give a hang about me. Um, oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You have a live recording of that. I have two CDs full of stuff, and I know there's multiple versions of that on there. And I don't even know where this stuff came from, but I used to trade. Neither do I. <laughs> I used to trade do I don't own any of it. <laughs> really? Yeah. When I do stuff, you know, I, I do it and then I'm done with it. I don't listen to it. And, you know, I don't listen to my own CDs because I don't have any. I don't watch DVDs of myself because I don't have any. I don't look at myself on YouTube because I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah. I already know what I do. So that's, uh, yeah, that yeah. You don't give a hang about. I wrote that when I was about fifteen years old. You don't give a hang about me. So that I did before the mosquitoes, and actually before there was even a group called Quisp. I wrote that song and we recorded it on some little my friend's little two track recorder. Then you know, then the mosquitoes did it. That was one of the songs I played to the bass player Ian, and he said, "Oh wow, this is great." And then he got his friend. Eve, they had a band before that called the Fabians. They were more of a punk band. They weren't really a pop band. They really liked that, and there was another song called Quit It. So those became the first two real original songs that the Mosquitoes did. And then I wrote a bunch of, I forgot how many songs I wrote, because people keep posting them. (laughs) All songs that I forgot. When I asked you to be my queen Tell me why you ain't mine And tell me why I'm sitting here crying ah, You don't give a hang about me So I'm walking the streets all alone in the rain You don't give a hang about me Oh, no. You were standing all alone 
Like 1979, like 1980. Okay. 1980. I wrote that. I was in high school. First year of high school. So I was, I was 15, 16 years old. Okay. So it's, uh, it's got kind of a punky feel, but it's what I would describe as power pop in terms of, you know, there was a lot of bands uh, making similar kind of music right at that time, 1980, yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know the other one was. Remember the Rubenus? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was a little younger than all those. You know, I was younger than those bands, so I definitely listened to those bands. But as I said, I was coming more. I mean, my favorite group was the Monkeys, still is. You know, I just, I just loved them. So uh, that's really where I was coming from. Monkeys, Partridge Family, and then the, all the British Invasion stuff as well. Right. Anything Beatles or. Stuff like that. So by the time you made your EP, did that come out in 1985, I think? I think it came out in 85, yeah. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. that's really a late addition to the, the whole canon of this kind of music? Um, yes. Was oh, definitely. That, was that because it just, you tried to get a record deal for however long, and then finally, did you guys put that out yourself? No, we didn't put it out ourselves. It was a... His name was Bruce Planty, and he had a he had a, a record store in the city, and he really he liked the group, and he was starting to put out compilations of local groups, uh, and so we did not put it out ourselves, but it wasn't you know it wasn't some big major record label. I think it was called Valhalla Records or something like that. It was you know some sort of independent. So yeah, what happened was uh, yeah, Arista, you know they they liked. They liked the group, and they were coming around, you know, sending a couple of A&R guys. This one guy named Mitchell Cohen. And then I think Mitchell really liked the band, but ultimately Clive Davis liked the songs, but didn't like the, you know, didn't find enough in the band. And truthfully, by that point, the Bangles were already doing what we did better. The Go-Go's were already doing what we did better. So I understand why it didn't all pan out, you know. I mean, there's only room for so much. I never really got the REM thing. I never... Everybody was like an REM devotee. I never really got it. It was uh, always a bit anemic for me. And I'm saying that as a fan, not as a a guy that should have been me instead of them. Their stuff sounded like B-sides. They never sounded like hit records. I I didn't realize how young you were. So you, you know, the first couple years of the band, you were still in high school, huh? Correct. Mm -hmm. I was very young. (laughs) Yeah, so you kind of, you know, you, you came a little after you know, the kind of feeding frenzy for that kind of music kind of, it seems like almost everybody got a record deal in 79, 80, 81, but correct. By the time you were getting serious, probably about it, that kind of, that whole little fad had kind of already passed you by. Right. But, you know, I, I love the EP. I love the songs, you know, do you want to hurt me? 
is a great one. on that EP uh, you know I felt that the bones are, I feel the bones are good but it never really uh, the energy wasn't captured on there and I, and I feel like we suffered from what I call 80s-itis you know we, we all knew how to you know all of the first Mosquitoes recordings we did we went in and sang it and played it live there might have been one or two like you know guitar overdubs just because we didn't have enough guys to play everything at one time but uh, you know by the by that point like 1985 Everything was much more careful, and we weren't really coming from that. You know, a good example, you know, the later Ramones albums, they didn't have the feel of the first five Ramones albums, right? The first five Ramones albums, every song is great, right? Yeah. And then, you know, it sort of starts getting watered down and overdubs, and it it was no longer that sort of a thing. There were bands that do that overdubbing thing way better than we did. So uh, I don't feel it really fit the genre of the music right so i was disappointed in the i think everybody was disappointed in the ep it was just sort of flat but you know people can see through it that like that kind of music and oh yeah the songs are cool and all that but well thanks for the compliment i appreciate it i like that song too yeah i can understand what you're saying just about the vibe of the of the record it's maybe you were trying were there outside influences that were, were? Well, trying? yeah, of course. Yeah, there was a there was a producer, a very nice guy, Toby Lynn, and truthfully, he did his best to get a really great record out of us. And and uh, I, you know, I'll say we fought him on it, and it didn't. It it, it definitely didn't. Um, he wasn't allowed to make us shine, <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, he had his hands tied a bit with some of our own limitations and 
you know, uh, preconceived notions of what, how this should be and how that should be. So, yeah, as I said, I think it could have been, it, it definitely could have been more successful if we had cooperated more with the producer, you know, that sort of a thing. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't the magical experience that some of our earlier recordings had been. Did you guys just kind of want to play it live in the studio, but he wanted you to record separately? I don't even know if it's so much that. There were some musical approaches where, you know, like, do you want to hurt me? Even though I think it, it predates uh, Stop the World and Melt With You, that's the sort of vibe that that song needed. So, you know, people weren't necessarily embracing that within the band. I was, <laughs> but uh, other people weren't. So they weren't willing to play <clears throat> more basically like that. You know, it was more, we were still coming from a more nuanced approach to music. And, you know, power pop is not that nuanced, is it? No. Yeah, right. No, it's just sort of, <clears throat> you know, eighth notes on the bass and a consistent uh, backbeat on the drums. You know, no, <laughs> no accent notes or grace notes or ghost notes. It was sort of, like I said, neither here nor there. You know, one foot in, one foot out. So you said 80s-itis. Do you mean, you know, by 1985, your kind of music was kind of out of fashion and there was lots of synthesizers. Like you're talking about I Melt With You as more of like a pop new wave song. Yeah, but but they but their approach is so appropriate on that, right? I yeah. mean, it's like, you know, if you like the music we like, there's no reason you can't like that song. It's got everything. The drums are just great. The guy's vocal is great. I, that's just a, you know, whereas I hear like Driver 8, and I'm like, okay, that sounds like about as good as the Mosquitoes EP, which wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, considered genius. You know, Michael Stipe always sounded like he was 80 years old when he sang. He didn't sound uh, <laughs> like a fresh, you know, fun teen kind of singer. Do you know what I'm talking? You know what I'm getting at? It was, uh, yeah. it wasn't a good kind of androgyny like David Bowie. It was just anemic. That seems to be my word for the day. But the uh, when I, when I talk about eighties, I just yeah, I think we were just a little bit careful. Like, um, you know, we weren't experienced with working with a click track, which was perfunctory for an eighties record. You know, you basically everything was a drum machine. So there was all there were all those kind of things that we were up against. That we just made, you know, it was an inferior record to what was going on at the time. Just uh, not everybody was on the same page. You know, it's, <laughs> if you listen to U2, I mean, you could tell they listened to uh, Brian Eno and, and Daniel Lanois, the producers, right? Everybody was, you know, uh, everybody was given a function and they were allowed to do it. And they came out with a with genius records, right? So, yeah, 80s-itis... I think we were pursuing the sound of what, what the 80s was supposed to sound like, and you know our music didn't really translate to that. So that's what I mean by 80s-itis.
so it sounds like maybe since you couldn't get a record deal, you the idea was put out your own, put out this small record, and maybe that would be, that would be your way in. But then you weren't happy with how that how that turned out. Well, it, I mean, if people had loved it, we the the story would have been different, right? We would have been a huge, huge band, but they didn't love it. You know, I mean, some people liked it. Some people, some people really loved it, but not enough people loved it. So, well, it probably wasn't too easy to get. I don't know what kind of. Did you have any kind of distribution or anything on it? That I, I was not very involved with that yeah. end of it. It was some, but a couple of distributors did pick it up. You're right. That was the key word back then. Distribution. Yeah. It's, again, I, it's a distant memory to me. You, you seem much more connected with that than I am. So. Yeah, there were, I think, five or six good distributors that picked it up. You know, I think people did the best with what we gave them. The Mosquitoes are were just a little late to the game, I think. But obviously yeah. because of your age, which I didn't even realize how young you guys were. But um, Well, I was, I was young. They weren't. They right. were all uh, uh, considerably older than I was. I was the young guy. I'm I'm not sure if you how much you know, but uh, I mean, there's like a cult, a power pop cult, <laughs> that's been you know for years now. I mean, I've been collecting it since the '90s. There's a lot of there's a lot of people. You know, you can't buy a Mosquitoes record for less than like thirty bucks now. I don't think it's. Is um, that true? Yeah, I had no idea. That's funny. It's kind of a collectible thing, and I'm sure most people who are really into power pop know the Mosquitoes. You know, and yeah, um, yeah, I've heard that. I mean, every now and then, it's, it's, it's uh, it comes in waves. Like, oh God, yeah, I, you know, or playing at a at a show with you know one of the groups that I play with, and somebody will show up, show up with a Mosquitoes album. You know, yeah. So it's pretty shocking to me, but it does happen.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.